All right, shall we pray? While we do come to give you thanks for the assurance of your care for those who trust you. We thank you for the full provision you've made for us. And we're coming tonight to ask that while we think together about all that you have done, everything that you've accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be given grace both to love him, come and seek refuge in him, and serve him. So, Father, we're coming and asking you to do that wonderful thing tonight for each one of us in our particular need. I would come to look to you for it, and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Isaiah's prophet in the uh, about 700 years before the Lord came. Imagine the circumstance yet. I don't, I don't know if you've ever tried to put yourself in the position of one of these characters and the things that happened to them. I don't know what went before it. We don't know how it happens, but in the year that King Uzziah dies, he says, I saw the Lord. Isaiah has a vision. Now, a vision in the Old Testament is something more than maybe a dream where you, at night you're dreaming about something or just a thought that you have, something that's going on in your mind. In a vision in the Old Testament economy, what would happen is a circumstance just as real as we have here tonight would occur. You would be placed into a situation in which you were suddenly plunged as if this is reality. You're there. You're not looking at it from the outside. You are part of it. And Isaiah, again, we don't know how it is that he gets into this place, but all of a sudden God speaks or God moves. He says, when it, he moved, he saw the Lord. <laughs> he suddenly is in the throne room of God. How about that? He's not there because he was seeking. He's there because God was seeking him and opened up the door for him and brings him into that place. And as he's in that place, he sees the grandeur of God. He sees the beauty that belongs to that place. He hears the chairman, the, the angels calling out to each other. This is a wonderful place, right? No, it's a terrifying place. It's a terrifying place because what he heard sung and said from angel to angel is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. And that doesn't mean a lot to us. It's not a word that we use in our everyday language uh, to describe anything. But the holiness of God means he's completely different. Everything about him is different. Everything about him is superior. Everything is is just the grandeur of God. It's a word that sums up a whole lot of his moral purity, his grandeur, his power. And now he's in the presence of that. But not only is he in the presence of that, but he feels that atmosphere. He's engulfed in this atmosphere. And there's a problem. You see, while he is in Jerusalem, which is where he would have been before this all takes place, while he's walking on the streets of Jerusalem, he is a prophet already and would have been, in a sense, quite happy with himself, it seems, because he is a superior being to the people around him. His life was probably a step above, a notch above the people that are around him. He's in a but now he's in a different atmosphere. Now he's in an atmosphere which is almost unbelievable. An atmosphere in which there is no sin. There is nothing which violates the purpose of God. There is nothing that defiles there except for 
Isaiah himself. Because in that atmosphere, he realizes that the speech that he has had as he's talking in the normal course of life on this earth wasn't up to the standard that he thought it was. It was impure language somehow. We don't know what. All he says is this, woe is me. I'm undone as I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the middle of people of unclean lips. The people that I'm around are speaking this way, but I have become like them even though I'm supposed to be speaking to them about the glory of God. This is not a good place. Now, uh, it's hard for us to pick up all this. is in Isaiah chapter 6. We won't go there. But when he says, woe is me, that's the word woe. Take a Bible study sometime and look at the places where woe comes up. Woe isn't sort of a, oh me, I'm having a bad day. Woe is a word which is almost always identified with a situation which is absolutely desperate. There's a terrible moment in the book of, of Revelation as things are getting towards him. God's about to take terrible steps, and, he says, and the angel comes out and says this, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. This is a terrible circumstance. Anyway, back to his thing. He says, woe is me. And the undone mean, doesn't mean just that, okay, I, I made a mistake here. I am condemned because he's in the throne room. This is the throne room of God. The throne is a place where a king sits when he's ruling, when he is actively judging. God is up there on that throne, and Isaiah is in the front of him, and Isaiah comes into that presence, and somehow the uncleanness of his speech is displayed. Now, we don't know how. It's, it's somehow he can't hide it. He's dirty. Like a man with a, a shirt that's, you know, supposed to be a white shirt, but it hasn't been cleaned recently. It looks okay until you walk into one of those kitchens in which everything is white. And all of a sudden, in the whiteness and the brightness, the defilement of your shirt, the little, anyway, it just isn't the same. And that's where Isaiah is. God has revealed himself to him, and he has come to this place. And actually what he says, woe is me, because I am condemned. I'm condemned. That, that I am undone means that I am facing the judge and there's nothing I can say. I am really a mess. Now, what he did was he said something about that. He spoke to him. He spoke it out loud. He confesses, this is where I'm at. God's revealed himself to him. Now, this is all in the revelation of God. Isn't that interesting? God is the one who brought him here. And then God puts him in this terrible, terrible place. Now, it's not a... Uh, it's not a misprint on your notes. Next one says God reveals himself. That's what it said. A was God reveals himself, and B says God reveals himself. The first revelation is the revelation of the holiness of God to Isaiah. But now God's going to reveal himself. Because after Isaiah says, <clears throat> woe is me, I'm undone, then God commands, an, and an angel takes a coal, Burning coal is all symbolic from an altar. An altar is a place where sacrifices are made. That's a big word for tonight, the sacrifice. And those sacrifices are made in order to deal with sin. He takes a coal off of that, and he comes over to Isaiah, and he touches his lips with it. I, I, I was stung one time right here. Do you realize how painful your lips can be when they, they, they feel it more than everywhere else? I also looked like Donald Duck when I was finished, but it doesn't matter. The point was that what it hit me at the time was the enormous amount of pain. I've been stung in a lot of places, but that was, this was something. Now, God says, take a coal 
and touch his lips. I can't even imagine the picture that's made there. And then God says this. This has touched your lip. Your sin is taken away. And instantaneously, the the atmosphere changes. Isaiah doesn't have guilt on him anymore. And as the story progresses, he now speaks with God in in a friendly manner. Because what comes next is God says to him, who, uh, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah volunteers. A man who wanted to get away, he wanted to get out of that atmosphere, now is volunteering to be the servant, be the messenger of God himself. Now, go to that story because in a real sense, that is a picture of what God does in salvation. Last week, we were thinking about the fact that when we are in sin, according to Romans chapter 3, there is no one who is righteous. There is not even one, not one person on the face of the earth who matches what God said to be. And that is expressed in the fact that not one person actually seeks after knowing God. He says it doesn't happen. That's Romans chapter 3. But there's hope tonight because the eternal God has come to seek us. We saw that as he comes to seek us, he begins to excite within our hearts a desire to seek him. And we begin to be, be moved towards him. That's why so many times in the New Testament when Jesus was speaking to people, what does he say? He come to me and just come to me. And yet the people he's saying come to me are not good people. They're not good people. How can they come? They can come because there's a way made for them to come. There's a way made. Now, they don't know it was a come, but they're going to have to take hold of that way. But if they take hold of that way, he will then take them and put them into his service. See, the the thought of salvation is he takes ones that are undone, cleanses them, and then uses them in his service. That is the fellowship that we have with God. One of those grand features, again, I am deeply grateful to in my life. That I can stand tonight and tell you about what Jesus Christ has done. Fellowshipping with the eternal God who is seeking to save that which is lost. He wants to come and he wants each one of us to know the fullness of his blessing. And I get the privilege, I who was undone, get the privilege of fellowshipping with God, being close to Him and interacting with Him in what He's doing on this earth. He has to do it. I can't do it, but I can fellowship with Him in it, just as Isaiah did. That's the dilemma that you have, again, in our own situation we come. God calls us, but as you come, you find out you're not ready for what's going to come. You're not ready for this. Now, I'll say this. The way in which God speaks to you, the way in which he reveals to you your unreadiness will vary. If everybody who knows the Lord, who has come to the Lord today uh, or in this auditorium got up and gave testimony, we would give testimony, different testimonies as to how the events took place. What was the order of the events? What were the, the key elements of those events? How did he begin to draw us? Where was it when we finally realized the undoneness of our own condition? That varies. 
But all these things come to pass because until this is established, until I get past that issue of the guilt of my sin, I cannot fellowship with God. Now that comes up in Old Testament or um, Book of Leviticus. How about that? <clears throat> Leviticus. <laughs> you know, all those programs to read through the Bible. You have to be really good to get past the Leviticus. I just have to I'd commend you if you made it. All right. Because it's, it's hard reading. Let's face it. It takes you to a world that you don't know. It takes you to a place you don't know. It takes you to priests and sacrifices and unclean things and clean things and temples and or tabernacles and altars. And it just is so absolutely remote from modern day church life in our experience that it's very difficult to read it without just saying, I'm thankful I'm New Testament, not Old Testament. But there is, a, there is a value here. There's something, you remember that we said a couple weeks ago as we were thinking about how God pursues us, He gives this Old Testament because in it He paints pictures which are going to be fulfilled so that we get a chance to see it coming to pass so that when the Lamb of God, when God comes to this earth, Jesus Christ, we will recognize him and we'll know what he's trying to do. The book of Leviticus starts off with sacrifices, all right? And they do not make much sense to us, but the first 12 chapters are almost nothing but a record of how to give sacrifices, how to do sacrifice. Now, I'm not going to try to go through all those. But you would find out, if you went through it, that every part of an Israeli's life was touched by sacrifice. We already are kind of aware of this part, that when a person sinned, they had to be cleansed through a sacrifice. A sacrifice had to be made for sin. That's the most common way we think about it, because of the work of our Lord. But there is also the thought that if I wanted to dedicate my life to God, I'm going to serve you with all my heart, I have to make a sacrifice. Something has to die in order for me to be accepted in that, that way. We think in the New Testament, again, um, of the multitude of commands that are given to give thanks. Right? We just to give thanks. Give thanks continuously. All right, So that should be something that's flowing from the heart of a person that's been born again. Now, in our case, all we do is give the thanks, right? In the Old Testament economy, when you wanted to give thanks, you went and made a sacrifice. Right? When Jesus was born, when he was born, his parents went to the temple and made a sacrifice of thanksgiving for a, a successful birth. You see, in order for the sacrifice, the thanksgiving to be accepted, it had to be identified with a sacrifice. If you wanted to, there was a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament time when a person would dedicate themselves to serving the Lord for a period of time. But when you started that, you always started it with a sacrifice. And when you got finished, you did another sacrifice. There is an offering in those, in those chapters, which is called the free will offering. The free will offering was given when you just wanted to say, God, I love you. Just wanted to say, yeah, I'm yours completely. You know, here it is. This is just, just say I love you. But even when you did that, it wasn't accepted unless you gave a, made a sacrifice. 
And what that was teaching the Hebrew people and is teaching us to enable us to understand what's coming ahead is that the basis of our fellowship with God is always a sacrifice. That is because the human race is all in sin. Now, let's just stop for a moment, and again, this will pick us up in just a moment in our picture. We use the word sin, you know. It seems to be a religious sort of word, but all this means is this. It's, it's very simple. Um, if there is a rule and you break it, and God's the one who's judging it, it's sin. If God was in charge of the, um, <clears throat> was in charge of the traffic laws in Greenville, South Carolina, then every time you break the speed limit, you sin, right? Now, we don't call it sin when regard, with regards to the government. We just call it an offense. But you see, sin comes in two forms. God says that you should do certain things, and you don't do them. That's sin. God says you shouldn't do certain things, and you do them. And that's sin. It's just breaking his rule, Right? Now, today, there was, uh, again, if that was the, the way it was, I watched a man sin against the government. We were sitting at a light this morning, or the, right after uh, lunch, <clears throat> right before lunch, and um, there's turn lanes, and there's straight lanes, and um guy right in front of us made that, I, I think a lot of people make this mistake, he saw the turn lane lights go on, took right off. Here it goes, right off into things. He's not allowed to do that. And he, he managed, to, the person saw him coming and just missed him coming in, so they, there was no accident in front of us. And he goes on down the road, right? <clears throat> but he still has sinned. But you can almost, I, I can almost feel what goes on in that. Maybe you have never been the guilty of that sort of thing. But you know what happens. You take a long look around to see. Blue lights anywhere? <laughs> no, just, you know, you're kind of embarrassed, but it's, you're mostly concerned about blue lights. You've already gotten past injury. Nobody's gotten hurt. But you want to know that it wasn't recorded. And we think about that, and, um, you know, that, that's okay. But you know, there's other places in the country where instead of a policeman, they have a camera. And you look around and say, oh, I made it. I got away with it. No, you didn't. There was a camera on a pole that as soon as you went under there, and it was red, went chick. And you get a picture in the mail of your car license plate and the charge for the ticket. You see, you didn't think it was recorded, but it was recorded. So this becomes much more serious in our own day. We can begin to feel the way it really is with regards to God because we all have a cell phone, right? Your life is being recorded. You know that. Where you've been to that. Again, you can make, take actions to try to slow down a lot of that. But on the other hand, I can talk about certain things that I'm thinking about doing, and my cell phone sends me advertisements about it. I think that's very spooky, but it's the way it is. All right? Today, everybody in this room that would, went almost anywhere was photoed on a regular basis. Every parking lot, all along the way. <laughs> uh, you, 
Where was the guy? Well, he came in right here. He came in right here. Here he goes. We can watch him because he's being photoed, because it's all being recorded. Now, it's, it's bundles of information about you, where you went, what you ordered, what you watched on that thing, what you did with it, who you talked to, every text. It's all been recorded. Now, it's recorded by artificial intelligence. Nobody is looking at you, but it's there if anybody wants to hunt it down. That's, that's the point we need to note. Now, this cuts very close, very much closer. It's very unnerving, isn't it? It should be unnerving because God is doing the same thing all of the time. It's being recorded. My life is being recorded. Now, a question comes up. This is one we used to, to argue, you know, if a person only sinned one time, would that be enough to send them to hell? The answer, the correct answer is yes, but it's an artificial question. Because you don't sin one time. You don't sin a hundred times. You sin continuously. I mean, after all, if the word of God says to me that I am to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind, Every moment of my day in which that is not a reality is sin. And somewhere along the line, as God calls us, he's, he has to make this, this aware, or makes us aware of all this. Now, there's the chance to come to him. Why is there a chance to come to him? Because the same one who has made this high demand has also made a way for me to approach him. But it's always through a sacrifice. It's never because of what I am, because what I am is so thoroughly polluted. It's absolutely polluted. I've got so many guilts against me that I can't possibly approach. Now, we have to go over that and think, how is it? How is it that God can bring us back? The basis of fellowship is always sacrifice. And so we want to talk about this word justified. Oh, wow justified <clears throat> when's the last time you used that other than how the columns are on your paper all right justified justified this way it's not a common word it's an very important biblical word and it's a very important word to us because the idea behind justification becomes the foundation of the entire life of faith Without a firm grasp of justification, no other part that we'll talk about when we come back in the winter and think about all the different ways we have to live by faith are going to be possible if I am not firm in my, my understanding of what it means to be justified. Now, justified takes us back to that, that place where Isaiah was. He's in the throne room of the king. All right, throne room of the king. Throne room is a place where a judge sits. Now, again, in the Roman world, it's a little different when you went to court than the American world. We have a jury. There was no jury in the Roman world. There was a judge. You appeared before a judge. You made your case. Somebody made a case against you. You made your defense. And the judge sits there and looks at the, same, the situation. And one man will then say one of two things. There are two words. They're very important in the book of Romans, but they're one of two words. One word is justified. There's, no, there's nothing there. The charge is not correct. He's justified, and away you go. Or, he says, condemned. 
condemned. Now, because the punishments of the Roman world are very harsh, that's a terrible, terrible thought. But you stand there, and one man's going to, to make that judgment. When a person stands before God, when I would have stood before God, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Because I don't have one sin. I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sin. Not an infinite number. We're not that good. We're not capable of continuous sin. But we are guilty in, in big ways. What is it that God wants to do? He wants to be able to say to that person, justified. Justified. How can he do that? That's what we want to think about. Now, first of all, I want to say that he can't do it through forgiveness alone. Now, we use the word forgiveness because God does forgive sin. But in this whole matter of our standing before God, forgiveness is not the issue. And that used to bother me, um, and I know that it bothers a lot of people, that God would tell me to forgive you no matter what you do to me, and then not be able to forgive anybody else. How was it that he can't, doesn't just forgive? I'm supposed to just forgive no matter what you did. Why can't he just forgive because of anything? Well, let's think about that for a moment because it helps us with regards to our forgiveness. I can forgive only because, if you have any sense of moral justice, the only reason I can forgive is in that act I am saying, I'm not going to hold it against you because I'm going to put you into God's hands. God is the judge. He rules. It's his. And I'm not going to take my own vengeance in this situation. I am going to entrust you into the hands of the one who is the righteous judge. Now, when you're in that place, okay, you're in that, that spot, then I can forgive you because I don't have to work out righteousness. It's not my job in the world to work out justice. It's my job to extend grace to people and tell them about what God has done for them. But that doesn't mean there is no justice. All I've done is move the justice from my shoulders to God's shoulders where it belongs because he will be the judge of all the earth. You see, if, if someone murders my child, and appears before a judge, and the judge says not guilty, we have a bad judge. Now, it's not my job to, I mean, you know, nope. it's not mine to sort the law out. We don't allow vengeance in the nation. No matter, I can't go and deal with that person and bring justice by killing them. That's just not right. I entrust the justice issue to that judge. But if the judge says, you know what, I just think we need to show some mercy here and just let the guy go, well, that might be kind to the individual, but it does not uphold justice. All right? If that is true, then there should be no law against it. If there is no penalty for offense, then there is no law at all. It's a suggestion or a hope, but it's not a law, right? The judge of all the earth will do what's right. The judge of all the earth. How can any of us survive that? That's, that is one of the great questions. 
of the Bible. When Jesus appeared on this earth, it's recorded in the second chapter of the book of John. John the Baptist, he's coming for baptism there, and John the Baptist looks at him, and here's what he has to say about him. He says, behold, look at him. This is it. That's, that's to draw attention here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. While the Lord was on this earth, he was going to do two great things for us. Again, there's a lot of teaching he does, a lot of healing he did, but two great, two great things on our behalf. Number one, he is going to keep the law. He's going to keep it. He actually did it. He actually obeyed his parents. He never told lies. He never lusted. He was never proud. He was never angry in a sinful way. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart. Everything he did, he did for his father. So that when he got to that time of his baptism, this is what God said about him. This is very important for, for you, for me. This is my beloved son, and I am well pleased in him. Everything about him is right. That's the eternal God. The same God that Isaiah saw and felt that terrible sense, I'm undone because I'm not right. And it wasn't a huge offense that he mentions there, but it was still an offense and he was still in trouble with God. But he says concerning Jesus Christ, this is my lamb or this is my son, excuse me, in whom I am completely happy. That's tremendous. He's going to say that again at the transfiguration. This is my son. I'm happy with him. That's very important. So he lived a righteous life. The second thing he's going to do is he is going to die as a sacrifice. He is going to go to a place, and before he goes, he will take on himself the guilt of the world. The guilt of the whole world. How he can accomplish that, beyond my ability to comprehend. But it is the testimony of God that the one he's going to raise from the dead in the testimony that this is all true, that this one took all of that guilt. What guilt? That guilt is the guilt that belonged to me. Right? It's not just the general sense that I am not what I ought to be. It's not just... My sinful nature. This is the particulars. This is the particulars. This is the lies that I told when I said that, you know what? I actually did a report for this thing that isn't there. This is the guilt for the time when I took a door and slammed it in my mother's face. This is the guilt for the girls that I looked at and didn't respect in my eyes. This is the guilt for the times when I exerted my pride and myself over other people. I don't want to go into the details of sin. It doesn't really help, but it's the details we want to get. That it's not just the general fact that Art Nuremberg wasn't up to all he should be. It was the fact that at this point he sinned, and at this point he was wrong, and at this point he lied, and at this point he was hypocritical, and at this point he did not love the Lord his God. He loved himself and served his own idols. 
He worshiped and served, which is what it comes down to. He worshiped and served himself. Those produce a pile of sin. When Jesus Christ went to a cross, he accepted my guilt for the particulars of my sin to himself. And in an amazing way, he did that for every person in this room. He can say, come, because this is all a way's been made. <clears throat> now, that's the possibility that arises <laughs> when he calls you to himself, okay? And you begin to be aware, what we said last week, that by faith you begin to say that he is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. But you begin to turn towards him. Somewhere along that line, in that turning, he has to alert you to the fact that you can't come one step further in moving towards God in the condition you're in. All right? And he tells you that you are going to have to come to Jesus Christ and allow his sacrifice on the cross to become good on your behalf. Now, he, may, he does this for everybody, all right? So you can say there's nobody who can't come, all right? There's nobody who can't come. That's the, whosoever will may come. But just because he did it does not mean you enter into it. You only enter into it when you come to the place of recognizing, as Isaiah did, I'm undone. I am undone. And you come to what the Old Testament saints called taking refuge in the Lord. You take refuge. You call on Him. You come to Him. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to read in just a moment in Romans chapter uh, 3 as He speaks about how He will justify. And when you do that, uh, a transaction takes place. And in that transaction, the guilt of all of your life is pushed over here and it's put on this account. And here comes the other side. The righteousness that Jesus worked out when he did all the things that I didn't do and should have done when he worked it out is put to my account. I will one day appear before the Lord. All right, I will appear before the Lord. Everybody appears before the Lord. That's biblical teaching. And it won't be very long ahead for any person in the room. The Bible exhorts us to tell people that your life is a vapor. You don't know how long it is, but even if you, I mean, I can't tell you how fast it's, how short a period it's been. I've been in the same place for 50 years. I sat in those seats when they were yellow seats. And that doesn't seem like this long ago. That seems like this long ago. When I was the student listening, when God was working in my heart to bring me to himself, it's a short period, but everybody's going to appear. Right now, anybody who wants to can avail themselves. That's if you're a living person in this room. You can avail yourself of what Jesus Christ did. The moment you pass from this life to that life, the opportunity shut off. It's just shut off. Everybody will appear. But when you appear, how will you appear? All right? Now, I will appear with joy, and there's many here who will appear with joy. Why? 
because when I'm put in before, if you want to picture it this way, and this is the way the picture goes, I am put before the judge, he will look down and say, not guilty, not guilty of anything. Absolutely righteous. He never lied. He never cheated. He never lusted. He never made a mistake. He obeyed his parents. Why? Because there he is going to look down on me and see the righteousness which the Lord Jesus Christ lived out on this earth on my behalf. And it becomes mine. And I have joy with regards to God. That's possible for every person in the room. The other possibility is you don't take hold of that. And when you get there, then you've got all those things. And then you would be in the same place Isaiah was without the potential of deliverance. You would be in exactly the same location he was in the presence of the holy God seated on the throne. But there would be no altar to make a change. It's all past due. It's appointed unto men once to die. Then comes the judgment. But right now, the reason I don't want to be involved in the justice issues on this earth and trying to work out vengeance is this. I have a message to tell you that you can get delivered from the guilt of your sin and be ready for that day tonight if you just take refuge in him. Because you're going to, everybody here, is, is you're standing before your thought with regards to God is in one of two ways. I am righteous in Christ or I hope God likes me the way I am and he doesn't. Once he does this action, he can look at me. I want to get back to this thing because it, well, let's read the passage from, from Romans. Let's, let's look at that. Romans chapter 3, with all that in front of or in back of us now, let's look and see how he describes this. <clears throat> this is Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. And I realize that for some who may not have been around the, the word much, this, is, this seems like a lot of very high language. But anyway, let's look at it. Right before this, he said, there's none that's righteous. No, not one. No, no one who seeks after God. But he says, but now, <clears throat> apart from the law, that is, apart from trying to do the right thing to impress God, the righteousness of God, the potential to be right in God's sight, that is, to pass in front of the judge and be, be um, counted as actually having kept the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he says it's being witnessed. The whole of the Old Testament points to the fact that you can't make it on your own. And that there has to be a sacrifice. And one day there would be a perfect sacrifice. And today there is a perfect sacrifice. All right. Verse 23 because this. Because of this. And this is what we've been talking about right along. For all of sin. Not one of us here gets out of that. And all of us fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Let me just say what he's saying there, that uh, you were in trouble. He piles on some big words here, but they, they all point to the same thing. He justified... That is, he declares one righteous. You were redeemed. 
Because to be in a place where you're in sin, it's a tough place. Redeem means to buy somebody out of a tough, tough circumstance. Like a man who's been kidnapped and he's being held and he's got a knife to his throat. It all depends on someone else paying the price. He can't get out. Well, somebody else has paid the price to deliver you from the dilemma, from that terrible situation. And he says, whom God displayed, is verse 25, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The propitiation thought is that God had to deal with the guilt of sin, and he does it in Christ. And on that cross, the full weight of the penalty of sin was dealt with, paid for, finished. So he puts all those big words together to point out how complete it is. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at this present time so that he would be, and this is what, so that he would be just. A righteous judge and still justify the one who has faith. Doesn't justify us because we've done something. He justifies us because we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And because of that justification, we have a standing with God which becomes the basis of the entire rest of our life. Everything about sanctification, everything about service, everything about hope on this earth rests on the, on the foundation that I have a relationship with God which can't be changed. At the beginning we sang a hymn and at the end that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Why doesn't he forsake us? Because we are such grand people? No, because we have been identified with his son, Jesus Christ. And in that identification, there can never be a break. There is nothing that can, can alter it. It's a wonderful place to be. But it's a horrifying place to be short of it. It's horrifying. I don't want to get emotional out here, but it's one of those things. A, I'm at that age where um, <clears throat> I lose friends on a regular basis to death. When a person dies, it's either the most wonderful or the most horrible thing that could possibly happen. If they know, if they have come to that place where God drew them to Himself, and as they came, they recognized the guilt of their sin, and they recognized, they admitted it to God. They said, that I am the man, that's exactly what I am. And they took refuge in the Lord, and they came to Him and asked Him to save them, to deliver them. That moment will be a wonderful moment, because you're given in the presence of God, and everything that has been the weights that we have to fight with on this earth are gone. And you're in the presence of holiness, not having to deal with this whole messy place of sin anymore. On the other hand, if a person is outside of Christ, it is a downward spiral. It's, it's just the realities. We're not here to try to scare anybody into heaven. We're just here to tell you the facts. That if it's not, if at that point, it hasn't been settled, then it is settled. It's settled forever. Um, 
C.S. Lewis talking about this, uh, the difference is this, if a person really knows the Lord and he's in eternity, you would be tempted if you saw them to worship them because of the beauty that belongs to. If they didn't know the Lord, it would be the most horrifying <laughs> of possible experiences. To see the person, you'd be horrified. He's either over here, over there. On this earth right now, it's a place of mixed blessing and curse. It just is. There's some good on this earth. There's some curse on this earth. Once you leave, you either go into the place of complete blessing or you go into the place of complete curse. But this standing, which is, is established when I come to Christ, becomes the foundation of my entire life. Because of that, I can be sanctified. Because of that, I can, I can serve him. I can do things in my life. I can know that tomorrow, <clears throat> when I get down to pray, or tonight, say, when you get down to pray, why does God turn his heart towards you? He turns it towards you because of a sacrifice. The basis of fellowship is always a sacrifice. The outworking of that, sac- of that fellowship can be all multiple different things. Have you ever been justified? That's, that's an important question. And I want to speak to those who are, are, have grown up in church. You know, you can be so close to it and never recognize your need. Never recognize, never let the Spirit of God show you the depth of where you need to come. Never move from that place of self-trust, that place of utter trust in Jesus Christ. I'm encouraging, think it through. Come to me, he says, when you come, and I want you to look to me and take refuge in me. I come to the Lord, confessing my sin, and asking him to deliver. If you do that, he takes away that guilt. He paid for it. It's, all, it's, it's just. It's all been paid for. And then he grants to you the very righteousness which belongs to Jesus Christ, in which you will stand forever. Which side are you on on that? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you to speak to our hearts and enable them to understand your way of salvation. We thank you that you have done wonderful things to make possible for us to draw close to God. Meet us that we might take hold of it in the fullest way, every person. We trust you for it, and we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.